John 1:43 The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him follow me Now Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter Philip found Nathanael and said to him we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph And Nathanael said to him Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. As far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, last week we looked at Jesus receiving his first disciples, Andrew and an unnamed disciple, probably John the Evangelist, the author of this epistle, and then Simon Barjona. They were drawn to Jesus, not by miracles, not by large crowds following Jesus. They were drawn by the preaching of the word. And when they began to follow Jesus, they soon learned that he would change them, that he would call them to be different men than they were at the time they were called, as indicated by the fact that he changed Simon's name to Peter, meaning rock. Jesus would take this rash impetuous man and make him a rock, a solid, dependable leader and a foundation stone of the church, a foundation for the church even to the present day. We are also drawn to Jesus through the preaching of the word. And when we follow Jesus, we are given a new name, the name Christian, And we are transformed into those who share in Christ's anointing to be prophets, priests, and kings, confessing his name, offering our lives as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, and as kings crushing Satan under our feet as we fight against sin, particularly the indwelling sin yet remaining in our own hearts. Now we look at Jesus receiving two more disciples, Philip and Nathanael. Let's look first at Philip. Who is this Philip? Well, don't confuse him with the deacon and the evangelist of Acts chapter 6 and 8, the man with four daughters. That's a different Philip. This is a Philip about whom very little is said in the other Gospels other than his Name is on a list, his name which means lover of horses. Not a bad name, but not one of any great religious significance either. John gives us a bit more information about him. Not all flattering, 
We see, first of all, that he's not very articulate. When Nathaniel raises an objection, he has no answer other than come and see, which isn't a bad answer, but uh, uh, he's not able to do more than that as far as giving a reason for the hope that is within him. He's also not a very decisive man because when the Greeks come to him in John chapter 12 and uh, demand an audience with Jesus, he doesn't quite know what to do. He brings the matter to Andrew and uh, uh, seeks advice from Andrew as to how this ought to be handled. Thirdly, John shows us that he's, uh, Philip is fairly financially savvy. He's smart enough to figure how much it costs to feed 5,000 men, but that's also his way of saying to Jesus, it can't be done. <laughs> it's, it'll cost too much. He uh, yet does not have a great deal of faith. And of course, he's also the one that uh, at the Last Supper says, show us the Father. Uh, he, like the rest of the disciples, uh, he's not unique in this, is a little slow on the uptake. They uh, had spent three years with uh, Jesus and still didn't understand that uh, seeing Jesus is uh, seeing the Father, for he is there to reveal the Father. He's not dumb. He, he knows Moses and the prophets, but he doesn't stand out. From his associations, we can assume that he also is a fisherman. He comes from a fisherman's village, and his good friend Nathaniel is a fisherman. Uh, bottom line is that uh, in choosing disciples, Jesus chooses not the high and mighty of his day, not the religious leaders or scholars, not naturally gifted people with charismatic personalities and obvious leadership skills, He's choosing ordinary people, common laborers. And if you'll allow me to repeat a point that I said last week, but not all of you were here last week, uh, this is evidence of God choosing the humble to shame the wise, as it says in 1 Corinthians. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the uh, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, not because of who you are and what you are. You weren't chosen because of your great potential to the church and to the kingdom of God. You were chosen by God according to his grace, according to his mercy, because he has mercy especially on the humble, upon the lowly. The apostle writes, this is a trustworthy saying. This, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And that's an example of, of who Christ calls and whom he receives as disciples. He receives those who humble themselves and come with contrite heart, confessing their sin. He comes uh, receiving those who know that they have sinned and fallen short of the mark and uh, confess their sins to him. To those, he gives assurance of salvation. Now the summons to Philip 
is abrupt and demanding. As soon as they meet, Jesus says, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. It's startling to see how Jesus deals with these people, although perhaps it's not as startling to Philip as it sounds to us. After all, he, the next very next day, goes to Nathanael and says, We have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, which meaning he and Nathanael had discussed this before. They, uh, they were looking for the one for whom Moses, about whom uh, Moses and the prophets wrote. And also, they certainly were aware of the messianic fever that was building ever since uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, made his uh, prophetic announcement at the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was attracting large crowds from Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, so they were aware. So this, this just doesn't come out totally out of the blue, but still, it's a very demanding call, which indeed is the call of the gospel to all who hear the gospel. We are all confronted with a Savior who says to us, Come, follow me. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ you need to answer that radical call that involves a, a change of perspective, a new world view, a new world and life view, as we sometimes call it, new values, rejecting the values of the world and adopting the, the values of the kingdom, and new goals. Instead of seeking our own pleasure, we seek first the kingdom and, and Christ's righteousness. You may not receive a call to... Go to, to uproot your family and take them from Pella and go to Pow Pow, New Guinea. But nevertheless, you need to be ready and willing to do whatever God calls you to do in this world. You know, when King Saul's son Jonathan recognized King David, or the young David, not yet king, recognized him as the Lord's anointed and the future king of Israel. He did two things. In making a covenant, he did two things. He, he gave David his robe. Kings and princes wore robes as a sign of their office. They're called royal robes. Remember, uh, King Ahasuerus told Mordecai, take the royal robes and put it on the man I choose to honor. Jonathan took his royal princely robe and put it on David, saying, You are the prince of the realm. You are the anointed one who will be the next king. He acknowledges Jesus as the Lord's anointed. He acknowledges David as the Lord's anointed servant. And then he hands him his sword. Surrendering one's sword is an act of acknowledging that the one to whom you give the sword is your conqueror, your lord, your captain, the one whom you serve. You place yourself in his service. And that's what Jonathan did. I now live to serve you, David. You are the rightful heir to the throne. You are my lord and captain, 
and I now serve you. And when we recognize Jesus as the Lord's anointed, we also are to enthrone him in our hearts and acknowledge him as our captain, our Lord, who is the one to command us and lead us and guide us in the way that he would have us go. Such is the summons of the gospel that came to Philip and the summons of the gospel that comes to us. Now, one of the first things that Philip did was to, like Andrew, Philip went and found somebody else to enlist in the service of the Lord's anointed, of God's anointed. He went and found his friend Nathaniel and introduces Nathaniel to Jesus by saying that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the one of whom the prophets and Moses have, have written. Now, when he mentions Nazareth, Nathaniel is taken aback and disturbed. He doesn't like that reference to Nazareth, and he, he voices his objection. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, what's he got against Nazareth? Well, a couple of things, perhaps. Uh, Nazareth was a backwater village of no consequence. You know, to the Romans... Jerusalem was a poor provincial capital of marginal importance in the empire. The only reason it got much attention was because the people there were so difficult to manage and were always uh, uh, in rebellion. But uh, they didn't consider it any great uh, uh, city of great importance in the kingdom. But in Jerusalem, why uh, Galilee was an outwater uh, a backwater uh, district. It was uh, an outlying district of little account. And of course, the village of Bethsaida, where Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and John are from, that was just a lowly fishing village. But to the people in Bethesda, Beth Bethsaida, uh, Andrew and, and John and Philip and Nathaniel, to the people of Bethsaida, <laughs> Nazareth was, was the bottom. <laughs> You couldn't get much lower than that in terms of a backwater village of no consequence. It was at the bottom of the pecking order. Uh, it's not Jerusalem. It's not uh, Galilee. It's not uh, Bethsaida. It's, it's worse yet. It's, it's that village of absolutely no importance whatsoever. But that isn't his only objection. I'm sure he is objecting because Nazareth isn't Bethlehem. Now, they knew the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2. You remember that when the wise men came from the east, the Magi came from the east, they came to King Herod and said, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod consulted with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and they said, Well, uh, Micah the prophet says that he's to be born in Bethlehem. That was a well-known fact, that the, the, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And when uh, Philip says he's from Nazareth, it just doesn't compute to Nathaniel. How can this be? And so uh, he, uh, he, he raises this objection. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need to understand that John's inclusion of this objection... The fact that he includes this in the gospel here 
plays the same role as the inclusion in the other Gospels of the fact that Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger and that when his parents uh, brought him to the temple for dedication, they offered the sacrifice of two pigeons, which was the sacrifice for those who were very poor. John doesn't give us the, the Christmas story, the, the birth narrative that shows the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth, uh, the humble circumstances of the incarnation, that He who is Lord of the universe, the King of kings and the creator of the heavens and the earth, that He became a single cell in the womb of His mother that he was nursed by Mary, that he had to have his diapers changed. John doesn't give us that story of the humble origins of the Messiah, but he does give us a clue as to the humble origins of the Messiah when he says that Jesus is of Nazareth, showing us the great humility that our Savior took, that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was yet, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Part of Jesus' humbling was that he was raised in a town which was scorned even by those from a fishing village, which itself was nothing to the people in Jerusalem. Now it's important that we recognize that Jesus came humbly because that shows us that, that salvation is for the humble. It doesn't come by might or by power, by worldly power, not by armies, not by kings in, in, in splendid array, waving their uh, great swords and throwing their great spears. Salvation comes through a tiny baby, born in humble circumstances, raised in an outwater backwater village of no consequence whatsoever, to remind you that if you are to receive salvation, you too must humble yourself. As we heard in the call to worship today, the Lord clothes the humble with salvation. Christ came humbly, and we receive salvation through humility by humbling ourselves before him. Now what happened next is an amazing event. When they arrive where Jesus is, Jesus greets Nathanael, whom he has never met before, and calls him a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. What does that mean? Well, no guile means that he's He does not pretend to be someone he's not. There's no pretense. There's no lies. He's he's open. He's transparent. He's plain spoken. Uh, He's blunt. Uh, He says just what he's thinking. You don't have to guess uh, uh, who is this really. I see the front he's putting on, but is that the real man? No, there's no disparity between what you see, what you hear, and who he really is. He's a man with no guile, no lies. Now, this has significance because he calls him a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Because that word Israelite reminds us of Israel, a man whose name used to be Jacob, 
who was indeed a man of guile. Jacob was a deceiver who lied, who lied repeatedly in order to steal his brother's blessing. He uh, pretended to be uh, concerned about his brother's well-being and and offering him food to eat, but really he just wanted to steal the blessing and uh, steal uh, the birthright. And then later he lied to his father repeatedly in order to steal the the birthright, uh, uh, the blessing. He was a man of guile, but that God... God transformed Jacob, the man of guile, and made him Israel, which means a prince of God. And now Jesus is saying to Nathanael, you are like the man that Jacob became. Not the man that Jacob was. You are like the man that Jacob became. He became a true Israel. He became a prince of God in whom there is no guile. God sanctified him and and changed him as God was going to change Peter from a a, a rash, impetuous man into a a rock, a foundation stone for the church. He he transformed Jacob from a a liar and a cheat, a a man full of guile into a, a prince of God. And Jesus is complimenting him, complimenting Nathanael, praising him. You, you are like the man that Jacob became, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, although Nathanael was a man in whom there was no guile, he yet had not achieved a great deal of humility because he didn't say, Oh, Jesus, you shouldn't say such nice things about me. I'm really not deserving of that. He said, well, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah, you got me pegged, but how do you know me? We've never met before. He's dumbfounded that Jesus should be able to, to know him even though uh, they had never met. Well, at that point, Jesus astounds him even more by saying uh, to him, uh, I... Uh, you think it's, uh, that's uh, wonderful. Uh, I saw you before Philip called you. Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, when Jesus says that, Nathaniel is blown away. We don't know why. We don't understand what's going on between them. There was something that happened to Nathaniel, or Nathaniel did something underneath the fig tree that he thought no one knew about, but Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And he is so, Nathaniel is so impressed that all his concerns about Nazareth and Bethlehem are completely put aside, and he confesses, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. You know, if this were a work of fiction, if this was something written a hundred years later by someone making this story up, we'd all know. (laughs) We'd all know the juicy details because readers want to know that sort of thing and that's the kind of detail that draws readers in, you know, to tell us the, the secrets that go on behind the scenes. But this has the stamp of truthfulness on it because... Jesus didn't reveal to anyone what was going on between him and Nathanael. And John, the gospel writer, doesn't know, so he can't tell us what's going on here. It's a secret between the two of them. But it's enough to convince Nathanael 
that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. But even that isn't all that Jesus is going to do for Nathanael. For then he goes on to speak about something even greater. He says, you're amazed that I, when I say I saw you under the fig tree, but you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what in the world is that all about? Angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? Well, Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite uh, terms for himself that comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, The person in Daniel's dream, he sees one like a Son of Man ascending to the throne and receiving a kingdom and power and dominion and so forth. Uh, We don't have time to go into all of that today, but... But this ascending, angels ascending and descending, what's that all about? Well, we've already been given a clue in the story here uh, in the reference to Israel, to Jacob, because Jacob had a dream. Jacob had a dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. Although if you have a uh, a study Bible, there'll probably be a footnote to that word uh, ladder that uh, uh, says uh, a great stone stairway like a ziggurat. ziggurat. Um, The uh, word in Hebrew there is used only in this place in the Old Testament. There's no other instance of this word that's translated ladder in the the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible. uh, But where you find it in secular uh, uh, Jewish writing or secular Hebrew, it's used of a, a man-made causeway or highway for the, for the movement of troops. Uh, so this isn't just a, a, a stepladder that uh, goes up to heaven. This is, this is a causeway to heaven. This is a, a highway to heaven. And if it's going up, perhaps it has steps like uh, the ancient temples that the people of God used to, be, uh, used to build. Um, the Tower of Babel, this uh, language reminds us of the Tower of Babel because it says the top of this reached to heaven and that was the goal, the architectural goal of the Tower of Babel to reach all the way to heaven. Uh, there's this great stairway or great uh, road up to heaven and on it there are angels ascending and descending. Now this comes to Jacob when he's at his lowest ebb. He's banished from his family and loved ones, banished from the covenant community. He's most likely filled with shame and disgrace for what he has done in stealing his brother's birthright and uh, lying to his father to steal the blessing. Uh, He's suffering now and he's at a very low ebb. He has uh, hit rock bottom, literally, because he has a rock for a pillow in the desert. And when he is at this low ebb, he has this vision, this dream uh, of, of, a, of highway to heaven and angels coming down and going up. Now, what's that mean? Well, angels are the messengers of God who bring to us uh, God's word, bring to us the good news, bring to us the gospel. Angels uh, uh, proclaim the message of God, and the message of God is the message of salvation. Uh, they, they show the glory of God. They show the power of God. And they're coming to Jacob. They're coming to Jacob. God now is saying to Jacob, I will come to you, and I will bring you to myself. 
You know, it's a two-way street, that ladder. It goes, they come down and they go up. God is coming to him, and he, God is bringing Jacob to himself. Jacob wakes up and says, God is in this place. God is here with me. God has come to me. God has come to me in my lowest point to bless me, to assure me of his love, to assure me of his message of peace and reconciliation. And we wonder, how can God do that? How, how can God come to a sinner, a sinner full of guile, full of deceit, full of lies? How can God come to such a one and bless him? Well, the answer is in our text. Because Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am the stairway to heaven. I am the highway to heaven. I am the one through whom God comes to you. And I am the one through whom you come to God. I'm the causeway. I'm the highway. I'm the stairs. I'm the ladder. I'm the connection who brings the blessing of God to you. And how does he do that? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John had proclaimed. That's what John said when he pointed to Jesus. He takes away our sin. How does he bring us to God? How is he the highway to heaven? How is he the gate of heaven? He is the gate of heaven because he is the one who washes us whiter than snow. He is the one who takes away our guilt and shame. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who will glorify us. He is the one who makes us acceptable. He opens the door of heaven. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says to Nathaniel, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see me become the gate of heaven. You're going to see me be the one who brings God to sinners and brings sinners to God. You're going to see me be the one who reconciles sinners to God. That's what God promised to show Nathaniel. And that's what God promises to show you as you humble your heart before him, confess your sins, and acknowledge your need for one to bring you to God because you cannot come to him yourself in your sins. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is God with us, that he is the gate of heaven. We thank you that he reconciles us to you, that he brings you to us and brings us to you. We thank you that he does that through the cross by covering our sins, atoning for them, so that we may be cleansed in your sight. Father, humble our hearts so that we might receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord and love him and serve him and offer our lives to him day by day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.